Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Exodus, Exodus chapter 5. We're working our way through uh, this wonderful book, and we've come to chapter 5 this evening. Exodus chapter 5, 1. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Surely that's it. We've arrived. God has arrived to save His people. Everything is going to fall into place. There will be no kinks, no wrinkles. We're just going to get there, end result. But Exodus chapter 5 is here to say say to us, the process sometimes matters, if not more, just as much as the end result. What is God doing in people's lives, even as He leads them to the end result? And maybe this evening you're processing something, you're in the midst of something, you want it over. Well, Exodus 5 says, here is the God we know and trust as He works Let's hear God's Word together. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt, you notice the different phrase now in case you're in any doubt about who Pharaoh is. The king of Egypt said to the Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. No, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it. Pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, these are the Jewish taskmasters, the people of Israel's own own men. Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Less resources, increased output, please. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. The foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set before them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? 
No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. You're just looking for an excuse to get out of working. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Then Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Amen. A few weeks ago, when we were looking at Exodus chapter 4, I said this, God is in the habit of disrupting lives to save and to send And that's what we saw, wasn't it, in chapter 4 about God and Moses. God takes Moses' life and upends it, turns it completely upside down and inside out as he sends Moses to save his people. Now this evening, I want to ask us this. Here's my question this evening. What are you like in the story of your life when what you know is true about God clashes with reality? What are you like in the story of your individual life when what you know about God is true comes into cold, hard contact with reality? When head knowledge meets the road, when the rubber hits the road, what are you like? If you have Exodus chapter 5 open in front of you, I wonder if you can see why I'm asking that question. That that question is my attempt to get right to the heart of this chapter, of the story of God disrupting to save and to send. That is what is happening, is it? God, God is disrupting here. God is disrupting everything, isn't he? He's disrupting Moses and Aaron's lives, sending them to Pharaoh. God is about to disrupt Pharaoh's life, only Pharaoh doesn't just really know it yet. And God is disrupting his own people's lives, isn't he? Think how bad slavery in Egypt was, and along comes God to save them, and what happens? It gets worse. That that is the main event of the story here this evening, friends. In chapter 5, God sending and saving causes the intensification of his people's suffering. And so if that was you there in Egypt, if that was me, let me ask you again, what are you like in the story of your life, when the things that your head tells you that you know are true about God, when those true things clash with reality. 
To answer that question, I want to lead us into this story this evening, this beautiful, difficult story. And I want to lead us into into the theology of Exodus 5 with two points. Number one, I want us to learn this evening how wrongly we can express our pain. I want us to learn how wrongly we can express our pain. And then secondly, I want us to feel how strongly we can express our pain. To a negative and a positive, learn how wrongly, but yet, friends, feel how strongly we can express our pain. I think both of these points come from the very end of the chapter. Verses 22 and 23, that is where the the story, if you like, meets its main teaching point for us this evening. Its main theological point is here. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So both of my points this evening, learn how wrongly we can express our pain, feel how strongly we can express our pain. Both of those points come from verses 22 and 23. There, there is something so wrong in these verses, and, and yet there is something so nearly right in Moses' plea. I want to show you what we should never do and show you what we should do or can do. And as we think about this, as we think about the first one, learn how wrongly we can express our pain. I want us to feel this this evening as, as a story about people in pain. That, that word pain is in both of my points. I think it's where the weight of the story is, isn't it? But it would actually be so easy for a preacher to, to focus on Pharaoh or to focus on Moses and Aaron And to think about what does this story show us about God, which is what we are going to do. But the emotion of the story, the the pathos of the story, it comes from the suffering of the people of God, doesn't it? Friends, can you imagine being given impossible work to do? I mean, some of you feel that's what's waiting for you tomorrow morning, don't you? Impossible work. But, But this is literally impossible, isn't it? It's like pump oil out of the North Sea, only I'm not going to let you get oil, but go and get oil. Make the impossible happen. Bricks without straw, you go and get the straw. Can you imagine, friend, friends, living with a job that is, is saying to you the demand is going to outstrip the supply, and yet you must put it right. To, to be beaten for your work, suffering for your work. And suffering up to this point had been bad enough, and yet now it is intensified, isn't it, with no end in sight. We really need to pause and think about this, don't we? I wonder if you remember these words, justice is broken. The process is broken. Some of us will remember them. These words come from Ferguson, Missouri, nearly 10 years ago. As that town and other towns across the United States erupted into violence and rioting and clashes with with the police. Those words, justice is broken, the process is broken. 
that those words were spoken, the anger erupted because Darren Wilson, a white police officer, had shot Michael Brown, a black teenager. And despite shooting this young man, Darren Wilson was not indicted by a jury who had examined the evidence and decided that he had not acted illegally as he pulled the trigger. And so what are you left with? A family robbed of their child, now feeling like they have been robbed of justice. And isn't it true, friends, simmering grievances, simmering grievances like that then just come to the boil, don't they? In, in that town, simmering grievances about the use of excessive police force, especially towards black people, just broke to the surface and exploded. See, the, the need to be loved, the need to be fed, the need to be clothed, the need to be watered, and the need to be treated with respect and dignity and for your work to be honorable. These are among the most basic human needs, aren't they? Some of those things are even recognized as human rights. What, what one human being fundamentally deserves and is entitled to, right up there at the top of that list is something that we cherish and something that we nurture all the time. It's something that a child learns to protect even from an early age and to stand by from an early age. It is the need for justice, for things to be right, for people to be treated with respect and dignity, the need to know that this wrong will not go unanswered. It's true, isn't it? Few things cause the emotions to boil or make the voice to quaver that cause the temperature to rise. Few things do that as when you feel and know that basic human dignities are being trampled on. Our whole conception of how the world should operate, even our whole view of who God is and what He wants from us and what we want from Him, it is threatened, isn't it, with devastating collapse if there is no justice. And friends, God's people are suffering here in Exodus 5. We, we read the story, we move on, we have our tea and coffee, we go home. But really, this kind of suffering? Listen to this, one commentator describing what was happening to God's people. He said this, These people worked out in the hot Egyptian sun all day, often in temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what what that is in Celsius. Hot, very hot. Driven to optimum, optimum production by their taskmasters. They had no hats to protect their heads. They wore nothing but a brief kilt or apron on their bodies. A wealthy Egyptian father talked with his son about the condition of their bricklayers. He observed that Their kidneys suffer because they are out in the sun with no clothes on. Their hands are torn to ribbons by the cruel work. They have to need need all sorts of muck. Certainly no one stood by to give the workers a drink every few minutes. It does not take much imagination to conclude that the severe rigor imposed on the Hebrews resulted in many of them dying of dehydration, heat prostration, heat stroke, and the like. In light of all this terrible suffering in Exodus 5, friends, number one, I want us to learn how wrongly we can express our pain. Look what Moses says to the Lord in the light of all of this. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? 
Why have you, Lord, done evil to this people? Brothers and sisters, this is how to wrongly express our pain, to accuse God of evil. This is never right. It's never the right thing to do, to say this to God. But isn't it true that this is one thing that happens when what we know about God in our heads clashes with what we experience in reality? We forget what we know, and we go with what we feel. Isn't that right? Isn't that true? We go with what we see. Reality wins nearly every time or all the time. But what did Moses know about God? Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. This name, the Lord, do you remember chapter 4? This name comes from the burning bush. The, the God who says to Moses, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. As Moses stares at a bush that is burning and yet not conser- consuming the bush. As Moses comes face to face with the God of the Hebrews who says to him, I am the eternal God. I need no one and nothing. Before you were, Moses, I was, and after you I will be forever. The God who does not draw his energy and resources from anything that anybody can give to him. In other words, Moses meets the all-powerful, all-conquering God. That's why he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses knew the truth about God. And you see that the way this whole narrative works, if you try and get a feel for it, the way that chapter 5 works as a story is that Moses knows who the Lord is, and we know who the Lord is. We, we were there with Moses at the burning bush, and so the narrative is saying to us, look, we're meant to be rubbing our hands here as you read chapter 5, that there is a clash coming here that there is a conquest about to happen. There is a clash of kingdoms coming here. The king of Egypt is meeting the king of all the earth. And as you get to chapter 2, and you, you're meant to be saying to yourself, Pharaoh, just let them go. This is your chance, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I am the king of Egypt. Who is the ever-living, eternal God? Pharaoh is stupidly, foolishly making everything worse for the people, but we know he's only making everything worse for himself. He's increasing his rebellion. And friends, more than this, Moses and us know that what Pharaoh is about to do in saying, I'm not going to let the people go, it's what God himself had already said Pharaoh would do. Look back at chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt… See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. We know in advance chapter 5 is not going to go well, and Moses should have known that it was not going to go well. But let me ask you again, what is Moses like in his story? when what he knows about God in his head, what he's 
seen, what he's sensed, what he's believed, what is he like when that knowledge now clashes with cold, hard reality? But when he comes up against the wrath of a cruel dictator, when he experiences the suffering of God's people, when he, when he has to face verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 5, the ambush of the foreman, that's really the sense of it. They, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they come out from Pharaoh. They, they pounced on Moses and Aaron. What is happening here, Moses and Aaron? This is not right. Isn't it true, friends, when we have to live life and come up against brutal suffering and we taste injustice, isn't it true that reality wins? Those things dominate. And what we know about God is shelved, forgotten. Where are you, Lord? How can you be like this? How can you be good when this is so bad? And it is possible, friends, in those moments to sin. You have done evil, Lord. Is that what Moses is saying? You are evil. You are evil, Lord. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, what was Adam and Eve's fundamental sin? It's not disobedience, is it? It's not the disobedience of the bare law of breaking God's word, of reaching out and taking something they weren't meant to touch. It is that, but it's, it's more than that, isn't it? You, you, you may not eat. It's not just that they broke that word. What is the fundamental sin? It is the sin of believing that God is not good and that what He has said is not good. If I can't have what I want, you cannot be good. If I cannot see the way forward from here, there mustn't be one, so you must be evil. No, friends, that is wrong. It is always the wrong way to express our pain. I was really struck when Will was preaching two weeks ago, I think it was, the, the sign that Moses had to uh, put in front of Pharaoh the, the serpent, the staff turning into a serpent. Will was telling us the significance of that sign is that the, the snake was the Egyptian sign. The, the crown that Pharaoh wore on his head was shaped like a cobra. The, the, the Pharaoh was the cobra king, the snake king. It's really interesting, isn't it? Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. These words that God is speaking to Pharaoh, that Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. What does Pharaoh call those words? Let heavier, heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. What did the serpent say in the garden? Did God really say? The serpent called God's word a lie, didn't he? Like he has always done, here is the serpent again raising his cobra head and saying that God's word is a lie. Don't listen to Moses and Aaron saying that you will go into the wilderness to worship this God I've never heard of. It's a lie. And friends, this is a clash between God's word. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, 
This is a clash between God's word and Pharaoh's word. There you have it in verse 10. Thus says Pharaoh. God's word versus Pharaoh's word. Who is going to win? Who are you going to believe, Moses? Who who are you going to believe, people of Israel? Friends, here Moses has lost sight of the fact that only God is good, and all that God ever does is good. And only God's word is true. Friends, look at it again, verse 1. Let my people go because I want them to work harder. Is that what God says? Let my people go that they may increase their labor, sweat even more. They're working for you, Pharaoh, but I want them out, and I'm going to really put them to work. Is that what he says? No. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. God is demanding a three-day holiday, a three-day festival, and Pharaoh is demanding more work, not even one day off. God wants rest, just like the Garden of Eden all over again. He wants rest. He wants to be with His people. God wants rest, and Pharaoh wants unreasonable work. Who is evil here? Is that the point of the story? Who is evil? It's not God. It's Pharaoh. Moses cannot see that in some mysterious way the evil that has fallen on the people, yes, it is evil, but it cannot ever be attributed to God. He he is not evil. He is good, and He only ever does good. I want you just to notice how wrong this is of Moses as a leader of God's people. See how it works that the foremen meet Moses and Aaron. They realize that Moses is above them. Moses is the spiritual leader. And the foremen jump on Moses. And in verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, Moses fails, doesn't he, as a leader? It's very hard, isn't it, to do something out of faithfulness to God and His Word, just like Moses had done, and to have His people turn on you. Moses is only doing what God told him to do, and now the people are against him. We want to say, don't we, to Moses here, welcome to Christian leadership. This is what it is like. But look how wrongly Moses handles their pain and handles his pain. He, he blames God for it all. It's all your fault, God. No, what Moses should have done at that point is, is to stand between the people and God as their mediator, as he will come to do later on. Moses should have learned to absorb the people's pain into himself and to to lift that up to God, to carry it to God in his own lament to God about the cost of leading them. But he should have trusted what he knew about God to be true. Friends, look how wrongly we can express our pain to God. Why have you done evil? Woe is me. Look at the people you gave me, Lord. They're they're blaming me, so I'm blaming you. No, look what should have happened. Number two. Number two, feel how strongly we can express our pain. And really here, I want to take verse 22 and 23, and if I can do this, I I want to put words back into Moses' mouth, the words that he should have prayed. 
Okay, look at, look at the verses with me again. Feel how strongly we can express our pain. If what Moses says in front of you in black and white on the page is wrong, here's what I think would have been right. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this to the people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You see how nearly right Moses is. All that is wrong in what he says is attributing evil to God. But that kind of lament to God, why have you done this? Oh, friends, feel how strongly we can express our pain. Jonathan Edwards, many of you know, was one of the most powerful preachers and writers in church history. And when he was just 55 years old, smallpox vaccinations had just come on the scene and they were proving helpful. Jonathan Edwards was vaccinated to try and help people, to show people that this could be trusted. But the doctor gave Edwards too much of the dose and he developed a fever which took his life, killed him. And the loss of Jonathan Edwards brought a severe trial to his wife, Sarah. And Sarah took up pen to write to her daughter about her husband, her husband's death, writing to her her daughter about her father's death. Here's what she wrote. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. I want to say to you, friends, this evening, it is okay to say to God, you have covered me, us, with a dark cloud. Feel how strongly we can express our pain. We're not very good at this, are we? we? We often pretend, but the Bible doesn't pretend. Do you remember Naomi returning to Israel? Do you remember the raw honesty of her words? What does she say? The Lord has afflicted me. The the Lord has afflicted me. I, I don't think we really say that, do we? In our hearts, we say other people have afflicted me. Circumstances have been unkind to me. We, we might even sometimes say that the enemy is at work here, the devil is at work here, or we say I've messed up, which is usually true, often true, at least in my case. But in the most heart-wrenching forms of sorrow, do we ever say to God, you have afflicted me? You have done this. God, you have turned on me ruthlessly. I often wonder if sometimes, ironically, I wonder if sometimes we'd have less pent-up problems with God if we were able to feel free to say these sorts of things to God. It's true, isn't it, that depression can be frozen rage. Yet think how much better you usually feel if, if a carefully chosen friend is able to listen to you as you get things off your chest. Friends, God is big enough to listen to His people. God is big enough to hear you speak. The tenderness of God's care is such that we can say these things to Him. Do you know how often God's saints address God like this? Abraham, Genesis 15. O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? 
What did Job say? I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. Job, again, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy, Lord? What did David say? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It's what Jeremiah did. It's what John the Baptist did. Friends, it is what the Lord Jesus himself cried on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, it's okay, isn't it, to know the truth about the future and to believe it with all your heart, to know what God will one day do for you. It's okay to know that. And yet, in your heart of hearts, to look back to the days when everything was better and when God's smile seemed to be on your life and friendship with Him was sweet, not bitter. The very tenderness of God's care is that He does not expect correct theology to automatically dictate raw emotion. Do you know that? God does not expect correct theology to dictate raw emotion. Hurting people do not travel quickly, do they? When you're hurt, you go slow. The lame limp, the heartbroken weep and cry, and they give out emotion more than they take in information or facts or new knowledge. You know, I mentioned Job there. Job's crying out to God. Do you remember what happened to him? I think Job's experience is like the people in Egypt, isn't it? This kind of suffering, this kind of affliction. Remember what God does with Job? He doesn't take him by the hand and lead him into the the control tower of the universe and give him all the answers. No, he, he simply takes Job by his hand and leads him instead to his throne. He leads Job to his majesty, to his greatness, to his indescribable, unfathomable power. It's like taking Job to meet up close the God of the burning bush. And he just says to Job, I want you to bow low before me. See, we ask, don't we, why doesn't God answer my question? Because we we think with our questions, we think what we want is knowledge. We want answers. We want things explained, reasoned. We want new information. And what God says to Job is, maybe you're not even built to understand my reasons, Job. Maybe you're not ready for them yet. Maybe learning to fear God is more beneficial to us than understanding God. I am a creature, and He is the Creator. And so, friends, what do we do when justice feels out of reach? and unobtainable to us. Some, some of you live with that, don't you? You cannot get the justice, the rightness, the, 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 the right way of the world working that we so desperately want. What do we do? Well, I want to invite you to remember Job again. He, he took the only option available to him. He cried out to God for an advocate, for a redeemer, for a champion, for someone to represent him before God and to declare him right. And you and I can do that too. But we have someone else, don't we? Someone greater, someone we can look to who has shown us what this cry of Moses in chapter 5, someone who shows us how this cry will be answered. I want you just to turn forward as we finish to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to turn forward to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. 
It's possible to hold two things together, isn't it? In the book of Exodus, the cry of the people comes up to God. I have heard my people's cry. It's possible to hold that in one hand and in the other to learn how to be a slave. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the pharaohs of the world, the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That is no credit. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And here's, here's the key to all of it, friends. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Friends, there is no suffering of injustice, no matter how great the greatest Israelite suffering in Egypt under the rod of Pharaoh, there is no suffering like it, like the suffering of Christ, the true faithful Israelite son. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See the key to it? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Oh, friends, it matters more than words can say. It matters more than words can say that there is a just judge. It's, it's why Ferguson went crazy all those years ago. It's why what happened when George Floyd died and the world erupted. When the justice system seems to fail and no just judge can be found, people become like caged animals, don't they? They become like people in despair. When there is no one left that you can turn to, no one that you can entrust yourself to, violence follows. That's why violence is on the streets. There is no one left to entrust yourself to. But look at the example of the Lord Jesus. Why the restraint? Why no retaliation? Why no threats? It is because he knew there was a just judge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands the judge of all the earth. Friends, into your hands I commit my anger. That's what you can say this evening. Into your hands I commit my pain, my sorrow. We should give ourselves to him when justice is what we feel we need more than anything else. Entrust yourself to him, to him who judges justly. Give yourself to him, and that can change everything, everything. So let me ask you again, who are you in the story of your life? What's it like in your story stage? What character are you playing when what you know is true about God up here clashes with reality of life out there? Isn't Moses imperfectly 
and then the Lord Jesus perfectly, aren't they saying to us that it's who God is that is our ultimate reality? It's not what we see. It's not what we feel. Yes, we live in that reality, yes, but the ultimate reality is that we belong to the God of the burning bush, the God who is a consuming fire. The ultimate reality is not what I see, but who is the Lord? Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? That's the question, isn't it? I I didn't read you all of Sarah Edwards' letter to her daughter, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives, and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be your ever-affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. So may it be for us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Amen.